And I'd now like to introduce our first speaker of the morning. Uh, so many is Mr. Mark Schultz. Mark, in 2019, became the commissioner of the Rehabilitation Services Administration, RSA, as well as the acting administrator. Uh, in these roles, Mark leads the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services, OSERS, and he and the team there at RSA uh, work to provide resources and technical assistance to state VR programs, and they do this so that people with disabilities can be successfully employed as well as live independently within the community. So prior to joining RSA, Mark hails from Nebraska, uh, where he was a deputy commissioner of the State Department of Education and also has a background uh, working with the Centers for Independent Living. So please give a warm ACB welcome to Acting Administrator of RSA and Commissioner Mark Schultz. Well, I guess I'll try this as well. So good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. So I can't let the gentleman from Louisiana's remarks uh, go without some kind of rebuttal, but uh, Joe Burroughs, Actually, um, his whole family played for the University of Nebraska. And when he was looking to transfer from Ohio State, he really wanted to go to Nebraska. And we made one of the biggest mistakes ever, right? Turning down a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback and saying that we already had our quarterback. So I, I think we look, regret that decision. But So congratulations to you. As Clark said, um, I have a varied experience and primarily in the area of serving individuals with disabilities. So I started out years ago as a director of a, uh, not a director, as a barrier-free design specialist for a center for independent living. And to be honest, I got the job because I needed one. I, was, I had a degree in architecture and it was at a time when construction really was down. And so I saw an ad in the paper for the Center for Independent Living, and they were looking for someone that had some experience in design. And I applied, got the job, thinking that, okay, I'll be there two years. It was a special grant program. It was probably going to go away. That would force me to look for another job. And here I am um, almost 40 years later, and I'm still working with people with disabilities. So I, yeah, I caught the fever. I really enjoyed what I was doing. I could see how meaningful the work was, and really um, that started my career. So I went from the Center for Independent Living, where I was running a program helping to modify people's homes for accessibility and helping to modify businesses as well, to a program running the Assistive Technology Partnership, which was the AT program in Nebraska. So I ran that program for 18 years, and we provided technology support and solutions to individuals with all types of disabilities. So a lot of my experience working with individuals who are blind or visually impaired comes from the AT program and providing that technology. Went from there to being the, um, working as the director of the VR program for the state of Nebraska. And I did that for about 11 years before the commissioner of education asked me to um, come on board as a deputy commissioner. Uh, that experience really was valuable because we reorganized the department, and as a part of that reorganization, I not only had vocational rehabilitation under me, but also special education, career and adult education, and some of the federal title programs, 
and special education. So that really helped me to start looking across all those programs and how we could better collaborate and coordinate our services. Um, no one has enough funding to do everything, but when we work together, that really helps to enhance and extend the services that we do have available. So from there, I was at, um, I was encouraged to apply for the um, RSA commissioner position and put my name in the hat. And I did, never expecting that something would actually happen with it. Um, little did I realize once I was nominated how long I was going to have to wait. Um, <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, I waited 500 days um, from my nomination to actually be confirmed by the Senate. And, and I've shared this story often because this is a true story, but... You wake up when you're nominated, and you, what do you do? You look in your home paper for the announcement, right? You want to see it? Well, it wasn't on the front page. Um, so I started going through the paper, and then I saw my picture and a little story about the nomination. And as I fully opened the picture, uh, paper, I noticed there were a lot of pictures and stories on that page because it was the obituary page. <laughs> I tell you what, that really puts things in perspective when you, when you see your picture on the obituary page. So I was, I was just glad to be alive for 500 more days. Um, so I was asked to come here this morning and share my vision for RSA and to talk about the changes that we've seen since the um, passage of the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act and some of the changes that have occurred since then. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about my vision, but then I'm going to share some data with you. And not necessarily to tell you what it means, because I think that's up to you, and, and I'll ask you what you think it means, but just to point out some of the things that we're seeing now through the data that's occurred since the passage of WIOA and since states have begun to implement that. So I'm really looking, as you go to the Hill, to raise some questions for you so that you can think about these things and things that you might want to do as a result of seeing the data. So let's talk about my vision. And I'm going to start by looking back 100 years. Because for those of you that don't know, 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the VR program. So June 2nd was the actual date of passage of the Smith-Fess Act, which expanded a veterans program to Americans with disabilities. So we're, we're going to start celebrating that. Those changes um, put VR into the center of many major shifts in policy for people with disabilities. That was the real beginning of a push. So if you think about that, there's Section 504, which talks about program access for people with disabilities to federal programs, really was the first civil rights legislation and that became the precursor to the Americans with Disabilities Act. You think about Section 508 in the Rehab Act. That spurred a lot of innovation and change, not only at the federal level, but in state-level programs as they look to enact similar standards for software, web-based information, and telecommunications. So a lot of great changes started to occur there. So VR has often been a catalyst for change in programs and systems. So it really should be no surprise that we're part of that change again today. The WIOA is helping to spur a lot more change. So I'm going to read you a quote um, that one of our staff, when we asked him to put together just kind of a perspective about the last 100 years, 
talking about some of the major milestones and benchmarks um, found. The quote starts out, over this period of time, the program has reinvented itself numerous times to meet the ever-changing employment needs and challenges faced by individuals with disabilities and the demands of public policy. While the basic purpose of the program has remained constant since its inception, the program has adapted itself to capitalize on and make use of new and more effective interventions and modalities to empower individuals with disabilities, particularly those with significant disabilities, to achieve high-quality employment outcomes to which they aspire and choose. So it sounds like that was something that was written just today, but that was written 50 years ago. So we're still about what we do. The basic is to help people with disabilities get jobs, right? To help them get meaningful, quality employment. And that's really the basis for um, our values as well. So when we look back 50 years ago on the 50th anniversary, here are the major issues of the day. Healthcare changes, social security, the need for partnering with other agencies, lack of funds to serve everyone. So I ask you the question, what's changed? <laughs> I mean, it's, those are the same issues we face today and more so, right? Um, so when people ask me about my vision, I talk about, well, how do we make a difference? How do we make a difference? And I think that's because we need to lead. We need to take ownership of these issues and we need to be in the forefront of them. So the 100th anniversary of the VR program provides the perfect opportunity to start that, to start increasing the visibility of the program. And by increasing the visibility, we'll help make those issues more meaningful and being brought to the forefront in all discussions. So we're starting that process by celebrating the 100th anniversary of the program. That's a pretty significant milestone. So we've done a few things I'm just gonna share with you briefly, but we put out a VR 100 logo that we're hoping that anyone that's associated with the VR program can attach to their email um, uh, signature line, um, to other correspondence that identifies you as connected to the VR program. And that's significant because across the country, the VR programs go by many different names. They're known by many different things. And one of the issues we've had is always connecting those programs across the country. Here's a perfect opportunity to do that for the use of that VR logo. And I've already seen it showing up on correspondence. In addition to start a discussion about many of these issues, we've set aside, a, a, we've created a VR hashtag, VR 100 years. So if you're someone that's really into social media, make sure you use that hashtag and it will connect you with that community and that conversation. We're also um, in the process of implementing what we're calling the 100th anniversary framework. So in January, we started to put out some of these ideas and suggestions through this framework. February is transition month. So we're focused on the collaboration between schools and VR programs across the country. And within this framework, we're looking at what kind of special events and activities that we can carry out under each of these themes for the next year. Um, so, as I said, transition this month, we're looking at what other announcements around policies and processes we can make. 
as well as what success stories we can share about the activities that are going on across the country. Again, as a way to elevate the program, um, but also as a way for you to go to what we're, what we're doing is compiling all these stories and events and activities on a single web page so that you'll be able to go to that web page. And if you choose to have these celebrations within your own state um, regarding your programs, you can access that information and you'll be able to use some of the materials and as well as the success stories in your own celebrations. So there are some things that I was hoping to be able to come here and announce because we were working very hard on getting some of these things done before the end of February. Um, so I'll share these as things that we're working on that you will hopefully see um, in the very, very near future. So one of those, of course, is a change that occurred as a result of WIOA, and that was the focus on pre-employment transition services. A lot of states are struggling with this um, because of the lack of flexibility within what counts as an expenditure under pre-employment transition services. So we've been exploring what flexibilities we can provide, and we are hoping to make an announcement um, within days uh, about what those flexibilities are as a way to support the work of states. So you can look forward to that. In addition, we are in the final stages of getting clearance on a transition guide, one that's been out there, but we've updated that based on changes in WIA as well as some other things that have gone on. So you'll see that very soon as well. So our goal is to get those out to you in February during transition month. Um, so we've got a couple days left. <laughs> Um, so hopefully we'll meet our goal, right? Um, March, we're going to be focusing on career and technical education and the collaborations that are going on and some of the success stories that can go there. I'm hoping to take that further because with this framework, it also creates an opportunity for me to start talking to our federal partners about the work that we should be doing together. So we've already been having discussions with the Office of Career and Technical and Adult Education around our collaborative efforts. So. You can look forward to hearing more about that in the month of March as we start to celebrate those achievements and accomplishments. So if you go to the web page, we will soon be posting the framework for the entire year. And I would expect through the first half of the year, we'll be talking about the things that have occurred over the last 100 years and most recently celebrating the activities and the achievements of the VR programs. And then as we start to get into the latter months of the year, we're going to start talking about looking forward about how we can, again, lead and what the future of the VR program should look like. If we're really true to WIOA and talking about some of the basic values of the VR program and carrying those forward into the future. So when we talk about what is my vision, I think one of the things that brought me to DC uh, was my frustration is that we were always reacting to things. We were never in control of anything. We always seemed to be responding. And I think VR programs need to be proactive. You need to be cutting edge. You need to be at the forefront of things. And I think we used to be. If you look back 50 years ago, we were. And we need to be there now 50 years later, 100 years later from the beginning. So our values haven't changed. We need to be at the forefront and leading with the values that we have as a program. We need to be leading proactively. We need to lead as a role model for change. And I say that because I think within RSA, we're taking a look at ourselves. And we know that we are, we've had some backlogs um, within certain programs in terms of reviewing and monitoring 
and we're looking at how we can be more effective and efficient in that so that we can once again lead as we provide support to states. So um, there are other efforts that if, um, as we go through the framework that we'll be announcing that will show how RSA is starting to move into more of a leadership role, not just within VR programs, but within other agencies and programs at a federal level. So I look forward to being able to share that with you as we move forward into the future. So here we are, once again, at the center of change. Um, and there are many areas, I think, that are of concern. Um, in, in terms of when we start to implement it, how do we achieve the reality of those, of the uh, change that we were asked to make? So you look at those changes. Pre-employment transition services was a big one, right? The focus of, on students and, and, and youth with disabilities. The partnerships with workforce development programs. WIA, the Workforce Investment Act, started to hold out those partnerships. The Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act now actually has some teeth and requires some funding through the infrastructure financing agreements to go to those one stops. It creates a greater expectation of alignment of the services that we provide across all the partners. Competitive integrated employment is another challenge. And I, that's, I'll talk a little more about that in a second. Um, but as I look at WIA, the biggest thing for me is doing away with the myth that we're about getting individuals a job, and any job counts. So I worked in a VR agency, and I know how much the outcomes drove the work of counselors. You wanted to get a successful outcome, and that's how you were judging your work. Well, WIOA changes that. It's focused on quality. If you look at the indicators, it's talking about wages, it's talking about how long you've been in a job, it's talking about benefits, it's talking about quality employment. So one of the things that we have to look at is what does that now mean for VR programs across the country? What does a successful program now look like? It's not just about getting someone any job and thinking we're done. How do we continue to support them? In, in Nebraska, I used to say, um, actually our problem is not getting people jobs. With this economy, it was pretty easy for people to get jobs. And in fact, people didn't feel that they needed VR services because they could go out and they could find a job pretty easily. The problem was they couldn't keep a job. The services and supports that they needed were not available to them because they were not working with the VR programs. Um, so we need to take a look at how do we reach out to people, um, but also to how we make the VR program meaningful to them once again. So it's not about just getting a job, it's about how we support their career pathway, how we help them make decisions about career pathways. And that's why you see those changes within WIOA. But seeing changes written on paper and then implementing them are two different things. So, um, but I think now it's our turn as we start to think about how to implement these things to be in the lead, just as they were 100 years ago um, it's now our turn. I think it's pretty exciting to be in the lead for what VR programs should look like for the next 100 years. And I know my staff laugh at me about the next 100 years because they're saying we're not going to be here. So um, maybe you ought to just think about the next five to 10 years. But whatever it is, it sets the stage for the future. And that's where we need to be at the forefront and having those kinds of discussions. So let's talk for a minute about competitive integrated employment and where we're at with that. Um, I know there were a number of rumors out there about what we're going to do and what things um, 
uh, that RSA is looking at. And I have to tell you, I'm at the in the in the middle of all that, and um, it, that's not true. <laughs> uh, so what you're hearing, really, right now, I'm in a listening mode. As many of you know, I've talked to many of you about the issues around competitive integrated employment. And I want to be respectful to all sides of this issue so that I can make an informed decision as we move forward. So going out and looking at this issue, um, kind of taking a fresh perspective as we look at that. So realizing that there may be some need for change here. Um, and talking to the people who actually worked on the legislation, talking to those people on the Hill, one of the things they talked about is that they really wanted to see BR monies directed to what they call competitive integrated employment. But when I asked them, what is, what is that? Um, I don't get an answer. It, it, it's up to us to figure out what that looks like. Uh, but in all my discussions, what I found is there is a commonality. There is a common vision for a couple in a couple areas. And one of those is that we value employment. That employment is valuable to the individual and that we should be about employment. The second is that we all want to maximize the potential of individuals with disabilities. So we have different ways of doing it and different ways of how we think that looks. So it's going to be my job to figure out how we best move that forward. The other thing that I think we have not really thought about, which we are starting to do, is reaching out to those other agencies that also are impacted by competitive integrated employment. So for example, the DD agencies, right? They have a, the same directive, if you look at the settings rule through CMS, ab about being in the community and in integration. So we want to talk to them so that when we're talking about our definitions, they align. So you're not going into one system and having a different expectation and coming into the VR system and there's a different one. Um, so we're in the process of doing that and this is taking some time. Uh, people ask me how soon we're going to be coming out with something. And what I can tell them is um, it was just a week ago that I've been in this job six months. <laughs> um, this is an issue that's going, been going on since the passage of WIOA. So give me just a little bit more time. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can come up with what will be a good solution for everybody. So the other one that was on the list of things that I need to make sure and talk about was the homemaker exemption. So I know um, that was particularly important for those agencies who serve individuals who are blind. And so I, wa I want to share. I've been pretty direct and upfront about this because I don't want to provide hope where there may not be as much hope. But when we look at the law and what it talks about, it really pushes VR programs to employment, to competitive integrated employment. That's the outcome. It actually moved the program, the independent living program, over to adult and community living. That's a message. Right, And the message is, is that those kinds of independent living services really belong somewhere else. That shouldn't be the focus of VR programs. So who should be providing that support? In my mind, since I worked for a center for independent living, and I'll have to admit, I worked for a center that had individuals who were blind that helped to found that center. So they had a really strong focus on working with people with all disabilities. And I know that's not true across the country. Um, but in my mind, that's where the change needs to occur. And so when I look at what VR's responsibility, what RSA's responsibility is, perhaps not to provide those services, but we need to make sure they are available 
So working with Centers for Independent Living, working with adult and community living to make sure that those services are being implemented and available in Centers for Independent Living across the country. So I've begun those discussions. I'm working with um, the um, Commissioner of uh, Adult and Community Living, Julie Hawker. Um, we've begun discussions and we're talking about how can we create a priority for them to start talking about how Centers for Independent Living and VR programs should be working together and whose role and responsibilities is it around the particular services. So we're beginning that discussion. It's not something I take lightly. Given my background, I know the importance of these services. So the other thing I would remind you is the services have not totally gone away from the VR programs. Okay, so for all those same, what I would call pre-employment transition services, those independent living skills development services, um, can still be a part of the individualized plan for employment. They can still be a part of the IPE. Don't forget that. And if they are part of the IPE and there's a goal of employment, those services are still available and can be provided. So it's just that you need to make sure the people that are coming to the VR program are, are going to need to have a goal of going to work. And so that's the difference. But we're also working with those independent living centers and we're gonna come up with strategies and how we can encourage them to also provide those kinds of supports and services. So, so that's the homemaker example. So I just, in looking at those areas, and I know those are, those are areas of concern to you, I think I just wanna remind you again that um, it's, it's your turn. You can take on some leadership in these areas. You can help me out in working with ACL. You can help me out in looking at changes that um, need to be made by providing me your input, your feedback, um, because it's our turn to start leading. It's your turn to start leading, to take on these challenges that are before us. And I think some of that's gonna be clear as I start to share some of this data with you now. And I'm gonna go through some things that we've seen in the last several, in the last 10 years, as well as the last two years, as we've implemented WIOA. Some of you may know that we're in the process of putting together a report to Congress on the changes that we've seen, on the trends that we've seen um, in the last several years since the implementation of WIOA. So, some of the information I can't release to you until it goes to Congress. So the information I'm gonna provide you might be just a little bit dated, but I think it still will be evidenced in the trends that we see in the report to Congress. So that's why I'm going to share that with you today. So let's talk about the number of applicants to the VR programs. So in 2010, 10 years ago, looking back, and there were 701,779 applicants to the VR program. In fiscal year 2019, 446,919. Pretty significant drop, right? The number of eligible individuals, so not everyone that applies is eligible, obviously. So out of the 701,000, 693,000 in FY 2010, were eligible. Out of the 446,000 applicants, 399,587 were eligible in FY 2019. So still a big drop, as you see from 693,000 to just under 400,000 individuals eligible now in the VR program across the country. 
So those eligible individuals receiving services under an IPE in fiscal year 2010. So these could also be individuals from any prior year that are still being served. So the number being served during that year were 1,011,395 individuals in FY 2010. It's increased in FY 2019 to 1,236,663. So it went up. But I think you'll see why it went up when I start sharing some numbers around the pre-employment transition services in VR. Um, what you need to know when you start looking at that data in that 10-year period, in FY 2014 through FY 2018, there was a gradual decline. So prior to pre-employment transition services, the program was going down in terms of the number of individuals served. So we went from 1,011,000 down to 932,000 in that period of time. So that's the trend that we're seeing in the data. So if you look at those individuals who exiting with an employment outcome, so in FY 2010, it was 152,587. If we look at FY 2019, it was 170,521. So it actually, there was an increase. The number of individuals exiting with employment and outcome in 2010 was 164,000. And that went up to 179,000 in FY 2016. But the trend now has fallen again to 142,000. So I don't know if I got that right. So let me, let me restate that just so I'm clear. So those exiting without an employment outcome, we've seen an increase from 152,000 to 170,000. Those exiting with an employment outcome, we've seen it decrease from 179,000 to 142,000 in the last four years, okay? So again, when I share the pre-employment transition data, that may help you understand why. The employment rate or the rehab rate was 51.9% in 2010, and that was rising to a high of 56.9% in 2016. But since that time, it's declined steadily to 45.5%. So that's fairly significant. That's gone down almost 11% in just the last four years. And that's for individuals with all disabilities. So let's talk about the students with disabilities because that was the impact in 2014 of WIOA is was requiring VR programs to start to serve students with disabilities and have a greater focus through pre-employment transition services. So and, um, we have data, and, and of course, many of you know that the reporting requirements changed with WIOA. So it went from fiscal year to program year. So some of this is a little difficult to correlate. But if we look at the program year for the number of students when we first started to have to report this in 2017, it was 525,000. So in 2018, it went up to 638,000. So that's uh, 110,000 additional students, an increase in just one year. And we expect that's probably gonna continue as states are starting to reach out and do a better job of that. The number of students receiving pre-employment transition services in 2017 was 179,700. That increased to 248,300 in, in program year 2018. 
So those are, those are students that are eligible students. We also are serving students who are potentially eligible, which is a new group of students that were never served before. So in 2017, we served 85,245 across the country. That went up to 137,780 in program year 2018. So again, another tremendous increase. Um, students who applied for VR services and received pre-employment transition services increased by 17% in just that one year. So that's a, that's a huge trend, and you'll see how that impacts the program in a minute. Um, so let me talk about what we were doing around the provision of pre-employment transition services. So in, in 2017, the number of services provided, and remember, this isn't going to be a one-to-one -one correlation with the students because the students could be receiving multiple services over a period of time. So in 2017, 747,837 services were provided, pre-employment transition services. In program year 2018, it went from 700, just under 750,000 to 1.2 million services. Pretty significant increase again. So again, the kinds of services, um, um, job exploration counseling was the most prevalent service. 25% uh, of the students received that service, followed by work-based learning experiences, counseling and enrollment opportunities, and the second most prevalent uh, service, workplace readiness training. And then instruction and self-advocacy um, was 16.6% of students receiving uh, instruction and self-advocacy. So I think this is the most telling statistic so when we start looking at the percentage of participants 24 and younger in the VR program. So in program year 2017, it was 49%, almost half. But in program year 2018, it was more than half of the individuals being served in the VR program are under the age of 25. They're 24 and younger. That's a significant change due to WIOA. So what happens? When you start serving more students, what happens? Adults are getting fewer services, okay? So that's why you're starting to see the numbers drop when we start talking about those individuals served. So let me, let me uh, go again to program your data that we have just to frame it a little differently. So the number of applicants for all VR agencies, and then I'll tell you the number of applicants for blind VR agencies. So you can kind of see the trends in both programs. So for all VR agencies in 2017, 414,531 individuals applied to the program. Blind VR agencies, it was 7,752 individuals across the country. 2018, for blind VR agencies, it went down to 6,886 from 7,700, okay? So there was a decrease in the number of applicants. But there is also a corresponding decrease in the number of applicants for all VR agencies. So it went from 414,000 to 398,000. So there was a decline. The number of eligible individuals for all VR agencies from 2017 to 2018 
increased from 473,000 to 479,000. So not a big increase, 6,000, but, but it was an increase, as contrasted with the blind VR agencies, where they went from 7,100 in 2017 to the number of eligible individuals in 2018 being 5,453. So again, that was a decrease in terms of the number of eligible individuals. So let's go to pre-employment transition services so we can compare that. So for all VR agencies, the number of students with disabilities being reported um, went from 525,000 to 638,000 in the course of the one year. For blind VR agencies, it went from 8,800, actually decreased to 8,500. So I'm not sure why. Like I said, I don't have the answers to why the data is saying this, um, but I'm sharing it with you so you, perhaps you can tell me what you're seeing and why. The number of potentially eligible students with disabilities went from 85,017 to 137,700 in 2018 for all VR agencies. For blind VR agencies, it went from 1,121 to 759. I don't know why. I don't know why there was a decrease. So the number of participants exiting with employment. Okay, this is the one I keep hearing over and over again is the number of outcomes are going down. Uh, for individuals who are blind. Well, that happens to be true for all VR agencies as well. So you look at 2017, it was 152,400. It went down to 142,700 for all VR agencies. Those are the number of people who exited with employment. For blind VR agencies, it went from 3,887 to 3,409. So that doesn't tell you anything really, unless I give you the percentages. So for all VR agencies, there was a 6.4% decrease. Um, for blind VR agencies, there was a 12.3% decrease. So I just pulled that group out because I was speaking here today. So what I need to do is look across other disability groups and see if there are comparable decreases to help me get a better understanding of why and what the significance of that is. So. Again, just sharing the data with you. Um, for um, the rehab rate itself, actually blind VR agencies are having a little better success with the individuals that you are working with. So the rehab rate for both years was 53.7%. For all VR agencies, it went from 49.3% down to 47.6%. And again, if you think about it, um, part of this is probably due to pre-employment transition services and students that are being brought into the VR program in order to access pre-employment transition services um, and not getting to an employment outcome. So it's affecting the rehab rate to some degree, as you can see. So the other effect that the changes in WIOA have had, and that includes pre-employment Transition services, the outreach around Section 511 to individuals in sheltered workshops, trying to bring them into the program to competitive integrated employment, the set-asides for the infrastructure financing agreements for the workforce development system. Um, when you start carving out all those pots of money for different services, what do you think is going to happen? You can't serve everybody, right? 
So the way that you can address that with MVR programs is through order of selection. So, yeah, so many of you are probably in states that are in an order of selection. Um, in fact, 41 VR agencies are in an order of selection now. Out of the 41, 31 of the 41 have at least one or more categories closed, which means there are a group of individuals who are not getting served, that they're on waiting lists now. Of those 31 agencies, eight are completely shut down. They're not taking any new referrals. They're only serving individuals who are currently have an IP and on their um, uh, case service list. So um, that's a tremendous impact when you start thinking about it, particularly eight states where no new individuals are going to get served. So that's an outcome. That's something we're seeing um, as a result of the changes in WIOA. So how do we address it? Um, that's a good question. I think if we look at across the requirements of WIOA, and one of the things we need to do is provide some flexibilities to states as they implement these programs. So that's one thing. That's one of the reasons I came to Washington, D.C., because as a director of a VR program, I knew the difficulties I was having implementing it and the impact it was having on the resources available to people with disabilities in our state. So as I travel across the country and I listen to other directors talk about the issues that they're facing, as I listen to you, sharing your stories with me about the issues that um, people with disabilities are facing. Um, I start to look at how can we provide greater flexibility to at least start to extend resources as much as possible. How can we work with our partners to help bring additional resources to bear on serving individuals with disabilities? So right now, those are the things that I have that I can do. Um, I, I appreciate the advocacy that you're going to be doing, because that's another strategy. You're going to be able to go and speak about those things, the issues, sharing some of the data that I shared with you today on the Hill, right? And it's up to them to figure out how to address those things within the requirements of WIOA. This is the year that WIOA was scheduled to be reauthorized. Um, <clears throat> if I had a bet on it, I don't think it's going to happen this year. There are a lot of things going on, right? Yeah. Yep. But one of the things I shared is that we have a charge, I believe, to lead, to not just sit and wait for somebody else to tell us what those changes are going to be, right? So we're starting to pull together groups. We're starting to talk about what changes we'd like to see that we think would improve services at a state level. Um, so I would offer to you, if you have ideas, you have suggestions, please let us know. You know, we want to be able to think, and at least on the administration side of things, be able to see what we can do to move forward some things so that we're prepared for the next 100 years. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, I think, um, to see if you have questions that perhaps I can answer or address. So I see a number of hands going up. So. Can yeah. Me first? Okay. okay. We've got about 10 minutes, so I'll try All and right. take as many as I can. Mark, my name is Kim Charlson. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm the immediate past president of ACB. Thank you for being here today, for giving us such a frank and honest and um, meaningful presentation um, about RSA. And um, it's really one of the first times I remember ever hearing from 
a commissioner with a presentation I could understand, which was good. I'll tell you what. So. I figure if I can't understand it, nobody else is going to, so I have to figure it out so for myself. I do appreciate that, Thank and, and um, I wanted to speak to a few things in your remarks. Um, I'm, after hearing about those, those words, order of selection, I, I am so happy that I am from Massachusetts, because we do not have order of selection. Um, I am one of the five um, statutory board advisors to our agency, appointed by the governor, so I know a bit about what's going on in rehab, not as much as um, oh, there's so much to know, and what you've talked about today, there's just so many facets of all of this. but. Um, I know that ACME is ready. We have a lot to say on this subject in a lot of areas. I think we agree with you in many. I think we disagree with you in some. Um, I'm not sure that we're ready to say that we believe that the needs of those who are not vocational rehabilitation ready individuals who are blind needs to be served by independent living centers or are being served adequately by independent living centers. Um, that's been a problem for decades, and I don't think we're going to solve that easily, so we want to work with you on that. But I think what I want to say most is we cannot forget about the people, the majority of blind people who are over the age of 65, it might even be 60, the people who are older, the people who have lost their vision later in life, the people who will not be vocational ready, they are the majority of the blind people in this country. And somehow they are being forgotten. And there is a program out there that's meant to serve them, the Older Individuals Who Are Blind program. And it is funded at such a poor level that it's, it's embarrassing. I mean, all they can get practically is a, a little tiny folding cane and maybe a talking watch and a, and a pat on the shoulder telling them that to have a good life. That's not inclusion. And you said that we need to be talking about inclusion for all individuals. And I just, we need a real solution and we're ready to work for that. And we want to work with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your remarks. I appreciate that. Uh, okay. Do you have a question? I saw your hand raised. Yeah. Hi, this is Trampus. Oh, excuse me. Trampus Brown from North Dakota. Um, I actually have a, a bit of a unique perspective, kind of similar to yours. Um, I, I've been through the VR program myself, um, and I work at a Center for Independent Living. We actually do provide a lot of services to the visually impaired and all disabilities. So I, I kind of want to squelch that in some situations. I know they're not all the same in all states, not even within our state are all the SILs providing the same types of services. Um, but our SIL also works with some VR grants uh, providing services in the pre-ETS programs. We see a lot of really good results. So I do want to commend you guys on that. Like the programming that we can provide due to those grants is making a huge difference to the young people. We don't serve, you know, 50 or 100 blind, blind students, but the ones that we do serve, we definitely help them reach their vocational goals as they transition out of high school. 
So thank you for that comment. I, I just want to add, if you, I talked about the framework for celebration. Um, July is the month where we're going to be talking about independent living um, and some of the activities and priorities that we're working jointly with the adult and community living uh, program. So be looking forward to July. Good morning, Mr. Schultz. My name is Michael Talley from Alabama. First and foremost, thank you so much for your precious time here today. Thank you for your vision and your commitment for moving RSA forward. And I promise you, there's so many of us in this room that are here to support you and help you in any way that we can. I have uh, two parts. One, it's kind of an invitation. I believe that you have said before that you are willing to take a look at different uh, NIB agencies. And I'd like to personally invite you to the Alabama uh, Institute for the Deaf and Blind. We have a really unique situation there in that our blind school, deaf school, our deaf-blind school and adult services and our industries is all within a three-mile radius. We have about 1,200 employed and only 300 of those are blind. But we have a conservative VR agency and it makes it tough for them to send people to our industry. So I have a team ready in place to be willing to pay for your visit uh, to, to our institute and we'd love to have you there. And Dr. Massey extends his warmest uh, invitation as well. Um, number two is I'm an avid Randolph Shepard uh, advocate and I speak around the country. And I'd just like to ask you, if you don't mind, um, what can RSA do and what is RSA willing to do about states that are knowingly not following RSA guidelines? Thank you. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for the easy question. Uh, <laughs> uh, Clark just told me we're out of time. Uh, no, I, and I'll have to be honest, when I came to DC, probably one of the programs I had the least amount of experience with was Randolph Shepard. So I've had to learn a tremendous amount. And um, so I appreciate what people have done to provide my education. Um, there are a number of things I think that we've been trying to address there. Obviously, it's a program that's difficult because we have some federal oversight, but a lot of the control is pushed down to the local level. So as you know, we've just started monitoring again. We've gone out to three states, or will be going out to three. Uh, we've finished with Maryland. Um, but we're using that as basically our pilot to start to frame our work going forward in terms of monitoring and technical assistance. We've been short-staffed. We've hired three additional staff since I've been there. Um, we're starting to deal with the backlog on um, a number of issues that we have. So as we start to get those things caught up, we'll be able to start focusing more proactively again by going out and taking a look at those issues and then making our findings and recommendations known so that if you, you have that information that if you're having that issue within your own state, at least you'll have kind of what we've said to another state available to you for support. So we're working on it. It's one of the issues that they've been very short-staffed for a long time. And um, so we need some time to get caught up. But I appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, Mark. This is Dan Spoon, an ACB president from Orlando, Florida. Thank you for being here today. It's, it's been uh, really uh, straightforward, honest, and in a condensed way that we can understand it. And I really appreciate that. In, in Orlando, we have a situation that I don't think is unique, but it's, it's really a personal story to me, and I'd like to share it with you. I'm, I'm on the board of our Lighthouse Central Florida. And six years ago, we started an NIB-supported program called Lighthouse Works. We had never had anything like that in our Central Florida community. And now, six years later, we have 50 individuals 
that are working through that program, 38 of them in call centers. They're making between $11 and $15 an hour. They're working between 20 and 40 hours a week with the average time in the 29 to 30 hour a week range. And and they're, they're, they're real people who have worked so hard, you know, haven't had a chance to have employment. They're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They're what I would call maybe the, 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 the they, were, they were kind of a little hardcore unemployed. And now these folks, Norma and Kim and DJ and Josh and Norma, they're, they're part of our chapter and working at Lighthouse Works has changed their lives. They now have, Kim has six children. She's a single parent whose husband passed away two years ago. She can now provide clothing for her kids. She can provide a vacation day at Disney World for them. You know, I mean, Josh has got, he's a technology buff. He can now get his iPhone, his latest iPhone. He can take his friends out and have a dinner. It's, it's absolutely changed their lives. And as I sit on that board, quote, unquote, integrated competitive employment, we don't qualify. NIB says in order to be a sponsored agency, 75% of your employees must be blind or visually impaired. VR services says, oh, if more than 50% of the people that work in your organization are disabled or blind or visually impaired, you're not entitled to VR services. That's what integrated competitive employment has meant to us. So these folks, we've worked around VR. We've got them the training they needed through donations. It's not easy to stand somebody up at a call center. It takes training to get to that point. But we're not working together. We're working in opposition of each other. And, 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 and these are real people whose lives are positively changed. So how can we all work together so that's not where we're sitting 10 years from now? I really want to work with you to see if we can move that forward. Thank you. You good? Well, one more question. So I swear that Dan and I did not collaborate prior to coming in here. Um, Hey, good morning, Mark. It's Mikey good from morning. Florida. Um, so, you know, I, I was sitting at the head of the rehab council when a consumer came to us from Lighthouse Works with an informed choice that he made. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how much he was making, well above minimum wage, well actually what's considered a living wage throughout the state. He knew that he had health care benefits, and he needed services. He didn't get those services because it was deemed non-integrated. Throughout the entire RSA, VR, there's something called informed choice and consumer choice. It's my position at this point that the definition of competitive integrated employment and a consumer's choice cancel each other out. Um, I know it's awful to say it in, in such a blunt way, but you know, you said you're here to listen, and sometimes I think we just have to give it to you, because I, I, I know you can take it. <laughs> I'm just not sure where you're going to take it to. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's almost like busing. You know, it, we're seriously 
we've crossed the threshold at this point. We expect our consumers to be educated. We want them to make decisions for themselves, and then we tell them they made the wrong decision. That cannot continue. Um, I would encourage you to take the folks from Alabama up on their offer to go out and check out these workplaces. I would encourage you to come to Florida and see what these call centers and some of these industries look like. Look at the contracts that they hold, these federal contracts. You know, we're talking serious money and serious work. Um, I, 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 it's disheartening to have to tell people that what they have chosen to do, their job is not deemed good enough by some type of regulation. My other thought, question, issue, which I'm sure you're aware of, is there was a lot of things that you brought up, some of the struggles you're dealing with, that individual states have the ability to start having these conversations and bring forth suggestions, especially when it comes to order of selection and stuff like that. You know, there is a very powerful tool in the box, and it is called the State Rehab Council. Um, that State Rehab Council has very specific instructions. It's drawn out as to how it should look, who's supposed to be on it. Um, however, as you know, most states and most territories are struggling, um, whether it's the fact that new administrations coming into positions don't know about rehab councils and why they're supposed to be there. But when is RSA going to start to say, well, we wrote it. We want this to happen. Um, we're going to provide some advisement. Maybe it's something as simple as when you're out monitoring each state to find out what the entity is that's in charge of appointments and educating them so that they understand why it's so critical that appointments come in timely, why it's important to have a full SRC. We are the voice at the state, and we get a lot done prior to coming to you. Um, however, our voice is being lowered and lowered and lowered, and there's some councils that are non-existent and some councils that can't function. Um, thank you for hearing me. I'm sure we'll cross paths again. <laughs> All right. Thank and, you, Mikey. Um, that um, just to be respectful of Mr. Schultz's time and the rest of our panel, we're already a little bit over, but I'd like to give Commissioner Schultz a chance to respond to, to you and Dan. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. And I'm sure we will cross paths again. But I, 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 is this on? We might just need to get a little closer. Okay. So I, I do want to just briefly say I, I realize there are lots of issues around the case-by-case -case determinations and consistency across the country in terms of how we are defining competitive integrated employment and how we uh, are excluding particular sites um, just with a blanket declaration instead of going out and actually taking a look at the work that's being done. So I am visiting sites. I'm continuing to do that. That's what's kind of slowed me down a little bit. I'm not going to get to everyone that's been able to invite me to come visit their site. Um, but I think at this point I've got a fairly good idea about the issues that are there, it's just figuring out how we can address those. Um, the one thing I can probably guarantee is I'm not going to be able to make everyone happy. This is a very passionate issue, and people feel very strongly on very different sides of the issue. Um, but again, I go back to what we can find in common, which is we value employment, and we want to maximize the potential of ind individuals with disabilities. And I want that to drive my decisions as we go forward. So. Thank you all very much. I appreciate the time this morning.